There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business, investing and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. A bit of a focus on policy uh, this week, uh, given the week that we've had in uh, fixed income. Don't forget to hit subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And a reminder that all the financial information in the show is general in nature only. Speak to a professional advisor about your needs. I am Paul Colgan, Director at CT Group, a research and campaigns consultancy in Sydney. And I am joined by James Whelan, Investment Manager at VFS Group. How are you, James? Oh, not so bad, Paul. How are you now? Uh, also on the line is Ken Vexler, Head of Acumen Management, live from Amsterdam. G'day, Ken. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, whatever time of day it is. How are we? Uh, very good. Um, just a quick uh, skip through a couple of things that caught my eye this week. I thought the um, uh, results in Virginia um, were very interesting. So the Virginia governor and lieutenant governor, those elections were overnight. Um, big, big swing to the uh, Republicans relative to uh, the presidential election this time last year. Uh, and for me, what was interesting was the the Republicans seem to win on education, right? So, um, which is traditionally a Democrat strength. Now, there's all this stuff about, well, it's, you know, critical race theory and all of that kind of thing. But look, yeah. fundamentally, uh, the mums of Virginia are not happy, and that shows in the swing um, uh, to uh, women voters, um, uh, to, to swing to Republicans. So um, interesting, certainly a lot that the Republicans are going to be energized um, uh, about ahead of the midterms, which raises the prospect of Biden's agenda getting blocked, getting stymied in Congress which makes for an interesting 2023 story, I think. Yep. Um, so we're taking a long view. Uh, what about you, James? Uh, go, going off the back of that one, for sure. Um, interesting to see what's going on. And that's uh, US politics has always sort of dragged my attention, which is fantastic. Going hard on critical race theory does seem to have worked. You don't win any votes pissing off mums. Uh, that is something that everyone should know by now. Um, a weaker Biden uh, presidentially does mean weaker from a uh, from a policy stance, which then actually sort of, if you want to run run the tape to the end, uh, probably actually meant a stronger dollar because less money printing to be able to pay for all the nonsense. So, um, if you want to play it all the way all the way through there, apart from that, seriously, just just been knuckling down, just been trying to just been trying to keep up with what on earth is going on with the various central banks around the world, but. Um, the one that I have actually been really focused on is uh, the energy situation, but but also about the the clean energy cycle. So everything that's coming out of Glasgow at the moment is showing some amazing colour for some of the other stuff that I've had on the side, some clean tech, some hydrogen, and also for uh, the nuclear. What's the you know the thing that goes into the nuclear? The uranium. You know, the, 
Yeah, that's it, the uranium, right? Yeah. Um, it shows an amazing, so amazing colour for some of those things. So it's amazing watching those things awaken now all of a sudden because, um, you know, one or two political leaders say that coal might not be the way that we've got to go. And so some of the clean tech stuff and some of the future stuff is really is really jumping at the moment. So keep your eyes on that. I think that hydrogen has, has a long way to go for me. Mm, um, yeah, uh, the hydrogen technology, from my point of view, like still unproven. Um, how is it going to replace all the energy output that it's, that people are talking about. I don't know. Yet it's unproven. It's a show. Yeah, it's yeah. a show on its own. But yes, it is a show on its own. Um, but um, look, I, I also am optimistic about technology. To be honest, um, uh, <laughs> and a good good example of that is my my favorite illustration of this is the NBN. So the NBN was never future proof. Five um, G has eclipsed. What the you know and whatever comes after five G is going to eclipse that. So and that technology moves much faster. Anyway, sort of same sort of deal with energy. I think given the amount of investment that's that's in that space, um, but um, there has been something bigger going on. Um, yeah, and that is fixed income markets. So I'm delighted that our guest this week on the show is. Uh, back on the show and we've done a lot of educational shows in the past with this guest um, that should lay the groundwork for a sort of meaty discussion here uh, but our guest is Martin Wetton, uh, Head of Fixed Income and FX Strategy at the Commonwealth Bank which is Australia's uh, biggest bank. Martin, welcome back to The Bib Show. Thank you Paul, very nice to be back on with you guys. Um, look, a lot has happened in the past week. I imagine it's been pretty frantic uh, in your world. But maybe let's go back to the start of this kind of current issue that we're looking at, right? So we all know the RBA uh, has abandoned yield curve controls. We will get to that. But it all started really with um, last Wednesday when there was the CPI data. Now, um, inflation data, particularly in the US, but also in Australia and then in other parts of the world, certainly New Zealand, um, has been coming in hotter than expected for much of this year. Uh, but maybe you can maybe maybe let's just recap what happened in terms of the the, the reading that we got last Wednesday, uh, and then what happened in the bond market in the days following. Certainly. Uh, so there was clearly a expectation that um, the CPI in Australia would be firm, albeit one that. Um, you know, came after a reasonably disappointing last wages number and uh, in a period when, you know, you'd started to see some lockdowns. So there was, um, you know, the concern that, that there were still some downside risks in the number. And, of course, everyone had looked at the New Zealand number, which is, uh, you know, often a red herring guide, but um, you can always fit a narrative to, to suit whatever your view is on this one. And yes, it was up on the tradable side. But what happened with Australia was uh, it was the property price component that was quite strong. And the market um, saw this number uh, at 0.7 to the quarterly core as being you know, a, a very high number. And of course, I, I know it's, it's, it's obvious, but it's worth restating it. That number's now there for the next four quarters. So you'd have to have very low numbers to knock it back out of the band. And the 0.7 set us up to the 2.1. So we finally got into the bottom range of the target 
to the core at least of 2.1 for the first time in five or six years. And markets were already testing the upside in yields, so front-end yields, uh, expectations of uh, central banks and the RBA hiking um, for some time, in fact, really since about the beginning of August. And that, um, you know, a combination of positioning, um, which was obviously uh, the wrong way around, um, a way to sort of hedge the uh, other markets that were, were pushing higher in yield, and that Australia was finally breaking out of um, a range that had been in for a long time, really just made the markets decide to take on the RBA. Um, as a friend of mine called it the other day, I thought rather cleverly, Sons of Soros. Um, and he was referring there, obviously, to the ERM and the Sterling um, you know, back almost 30 years ago. And uh, effectively, the market took on the RBA here. The problem with yield curve targeting, not to drone on with this, is that it's um, you know, you've got a fixed rate and you've got a certain amount of that bond. If you're buying across the curve, uh, you know you can you can sort of choose your point on the curve, and you weren't um, tied to any particular bond. So the market tested it and said, effectively, that an April 24 bond, which is just shy of what two and a half years from now, would. There's no point of it being at 0.1% because by then the RBA will have had to have lifted policy rates. And at that stage, uh, OIS pricing, which is basically short, uh, the average cash rate over the period of time, had already said, well, they're actually hiking in 2022, not 2024. So there was this gap of two years between where the RBA was saying things and where the market was saying things. So there was a credibility issue at stake here. And the market took the RBA on and I wouldn't say they won because the RBA walked away from it. But the frustrating part of it was that there was no communication. Martin, there was a fight. The RBA walked away from it. That 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 sort of sounds like the RBA didn't win the fight. Um yeah, look, that's, Come on. if you think if you if you take it to that analogy, um, no one lost but no one won. <laughs> um, and you know, you can't be it, it's hard to be um, critical of the RBA here. They had a, they had a, you know, a policy that really worked well at the beginning and delivered what they needed at the beginning. It was always going to be a messy ending. It, um, you know, these things typically are. But look, we're we're four or five days on, not even. Uh, we're a couple of days on, and things have cooled down immensely. I mean, even from Monday, um, yields dropped very sharply in the April 24 bond from that sort of 80 basis point down to into the mid 60s. So it's well away. Yeah, sure. But it's, um, it hasn't taken it to the moon. Yeah. There does come a point in those, in in those areas where you just like, okay, I have to buy it or it's definitely very buyable at that that spot. And and all of these things. Yeah. Well, they'd they'd reintroduced a policy that they had back in March, which effectively punished short sellers. Now, you don't have to be a bond market expert to know what that means because it's the same as in the equity market. If you're short and you have to borrow the stock, you have to pay a lot for it. It was 100 basis points, which was very expensive. Um, The difference this time to back in February and March when the stock was heavily borrowed to the tune of around a billion dollars per day was no one was shorting the stock and having to borrow it. So that punitive measure 
didn't have the same efficacy as it did back then. And it just was, everything was pushing higher. Everything had to adjust. Floating rate rates, swaps, futures contracts, um, all the bonds around it, both below, uh, shorter and longer in tenor. And you couldn't trade it for love or money. Yeah, so really liquidity liquidity had disappeared. I saw bid ask spreads oh, were really just yeah. just just enormous. Yeah, yeah, and and even if the RBA had wanted to intervene and say buy that April twenty four, would they have been able to to get enough to to push um, the, the the yield down to where, or would they have bid at the hypothetically would they have exactly bid at the price? Precise on that, mm. we we estimated. Um, that there would have been about another $2 billion, maybe $3 billion that they could have bought of that bond in the market. But a lot of these just sit in the bottom drawers of fund managers or central banks or bank balance sheets, and they never come out. And certainly if they bought them anywhere between, you know, say 30, 40 basis points and then down to the lows of, I think it got down to a low of about three basis points at one point, um, to sell them, even up at those higher levels, you know, they would have actually lost money on that trade. So mm. it was really up to the RBA to go and source those bonds and drive it down. Yes, they could have said, we will buy whatever is there and our bid is 10 basis points and you may as well sell it to us. And in a lot of ways, if you did own them, you you would have done that. And then you probably would have seen the, the rate of it spike back higher and you would have said, well, I've actually made a profit off this. Um, there was probably a degree of people who, if they could get stock at 50, 60, 70 basis points, were buying it in the hope that the RBA would defend it at 10 and they could make some money. But in the end, they didn't. So now you've got a bond that um, is no longer the tail wagging the dog. It's no longer a liquid bond. It probably doesn't get traded much from here at all. But at least from the RBA's point of view, they've kind of put that behind them and they've acknowledged that the market pricing was oh well, sorry that their their view of when they would hike in Feb twenty four or in, in early twenty four was too far away, but they're not going to go and say well we actually think it should be in two thousand twenty two, which obviously many people still believe. Mm. I uh, do that annoying thing that I do sometimes. I do apologise for this, Martin. Uh, huh? Unscripted. Bond the, prices do move inversely to yields. Yeah, thank <laughs> you. I, every time. I've got to write this down, man. I swear to God. i got to write this down. The, no, no, no. Okay, everyone talks about everyone talks about the 10-year the, the yield over in the States as being the thing yep. that everything is priced on. Obviously, that's important. Can we can we draw what we're talking about with, with a two-and-a-half-year away bond and the RBA and the defensibility of certain points? How is this actually? Yeah. How is this actually now relevant to what's going on in Australia right now? It's actually a really good question because it goes back to why did they choose this policy in the beginning? Mm. And if you remember, in early twenty twenty, the April twenty three was the three year bond. It rolled to the April twenty four um, uh, in the I think November of, of uh, the year, um, as that was closest to the pin. Now, the reason why. The comparison of a three-year in Australia and a ten-year in the US is pretty much around things like mortgage and corporate borrowing. So in Australia, we typically don't fix mortgages. We typically have floating rate mortgages um, because you know there's benefits like uh, an offset account, and you know for the last thirty years, interest rates have pretty much gone down. You've all often always had 
floating rate or, or what's known as the variable rate is the big discount if you've asked for it and, you know, make sure you do. The government's said to do that. Um, and it's been a discount to the fixed rate. And the thing about a fixed rate is you can't pay it down early in many cases. So it was um, if rates fell, uh, you know, you were still paying the high fixed rate. What was happening at the time was that the rates market had dropped so much that, you know, banks were offering fixed rates at four-year under 2%. Uh, I know I certainly availed myself of that at the time, uh, which is out in the public as well because I did an interview in ABC TV about that. Um, but uh, it also is the point on the curve where many corporates, and I mean by corporates, small business, fix their, their borrowings because pretty much the people who own you know, have a mortgage on their house will have a borrowing with a bank on their business and they will think in the same way around fixing their rates. So it's a really good point on the curve to be fixing, or well, to be um, managing your personal interest rate risk or your business interest rate risk. In the US, it's different. The um, mortgage curve is fixed rate and they have 30-year fixed rate mortgages. Obviously, things are tax deductible for interest over there, but you have capital gains, whereas on our primary residence in Australia, we don't have capital gains and this is not tax advice. Um, and so the 30-year in the US and to a degree because the 10 -year, you can price off the 10-year there, that's the point on the curve where corporates and mortgages tend to find their liquid point. But also from an investment point of view, um, the 10 years kind of a benchmark uh, product. So that is the difference and the similarities between the two. And at the time, it worked really well for the RBA to be holding down the rates that um, corporates and mortgages could borrow. And let's not forget something that rolled off in June of this year, which was the term funding facility, which was also timed around that three-year point and held down the cost of funding for banks. So they were able to you know, <clears throat> borrow at a cheaper rate and lend on to the RBA. One thing that is a little different in this is that the AOFM, Australian Office of Financial Management, part of the Treasury as the borrower for the Australian government, doesn't really borrow a lot of three years. So you weren't really helping them too much in, uh, in the three years because they typically borrow around the seven or eight year mark. But what the BPP or Bond Purchase Program, also known as QE did, was it helped them out there to the tune of around 20 to 40 basis points uh, lower in their cost of funds for the government, so it made their interest costs lower. So, so Martin, across the curve then, um, maybe you can just step through what rates look like across the, the, the lending curve because there's been that big flattening between 3 and 10. Yeah. Um, and maybe you can talk through how you interpret that in terms of what the market's saying, what is going to happen to rates and growth um, over, say, the next 10 years. Sure thing. Uh, so the rise that we've seen has, as I said, been pretty much concentrated on that, I guess, one to five year part of the curve in this sell-off and very different to the sell-off we saw earlier in the year, January, February and into the first few days of March when it was called, I believe erroneously, the reflation trade. I would call it the reopening trade or have called it the reopening trade. And it was where... Um, short-end rates stayed very pinned to where central banks had them, but the back end sold off because that was the point where 
things had to move. What's changed this time is that the front ends have sold off because they've said, you've got inflation, you're going to have to hike, and you're going to have to hike far sooner than what you're telling us as central banks. Now, New Zealand's already gone there. The UK's probably about to go there, Canada too, and you know a number of other emerging markets, central banks have hiked. And clearly, um, central banks have manoeuvred themselves to say, well, all right, you, you're probably correct that we'll have to tighten a little bit more. Um, and, oh, sorry, a, a little bit sooner than you think, but hold on, if you think we're going to go hiking rates by you know, 200, 250 basis points, we think you're wrong, Mr. Market, or, or you know, Market. And in that move, um, what you've seen is that uh, the curve has flattened. So uh, long rates haven't gone up as much as short rates. So the shape of the curve has flipped downwards. Now, we all know, I'm sure everyone's heard of the uh, expression, you know, the curve inversion and uh, what that tells us about recessions. And what it's possibly telling us is, one, um, inflation's gonna be higher than you expect, therefore you have to sell off the front end to tighten policy. But the back end should be the one that sells off more because that's where bond investors are getting chewed up on their capital mm. because of inflation. And yet it hasn't happened. Yes, yields have gone up a little bit in the back end, but relative to the front end, they've dropped. So you've had what's called a massive inversion in the curve, and that says to me that there is a risk of a policy error tightening too soon and too much. And I think the bond market is signalling through the wisdom of the crowd that that is kind of where we're going to get to. You, so you think that the, the RBA could tighten too fast? Not sure the RBA so much. I, I certainly think the Fed um, could do that. Right. Um, but, you know, one thing, and I know you've had him on the show before, but my colleague Gareth Ed has done a lot of work around how much we've borrowed on our personal balance sheets. And let's forget, and I know, James, we've talked about this before, the government balance sheet. Let's forget about that for a moment and talk about our personal balance sheets. Here in Sydney and pretty much anywhere in the world where people have bought houses, they've bought them at record prices and record low interest rates. So their debt burden is very high. But their serviceability is, you know, at all-time lows or close to it, and it's very manageable. Yeah. But if rates go up, if they double from here, you're doubling your cost. So what what I would think from this is if we really lift the cost of borrowing so much, we, we do run that risk of a policy error. And, uh, and I think what Gareth had looked at was the sensitivity to sort of 1% rise in cash rates is a lot more substantial than we've had in the past. And so his view was really the terminal cash rate in Australia gets to one and a quarter percent. So it's not, you know, mum and dad's cash rate cycle. It's it's a mini cycle, but it's still a fairly punchy one in terms of how much that costs you when you've got lower rates, uh, when you've come from these very, very low rates. Just Marty, if I can jump in on on that uh, on that topic. I mean, are we are we looking at a situation where you know we, we typically say the market is one when talking about equities, for example, the market is one thing, the economy is another, and never never shall the two twins meet, right? Are we are we seeing a, a not entirely dissimilar situation here, whereby 
the bond market and the market in general is pricing these curves like you know riddle and deprived ADD sufferers, <laughs> and the central banks are sort of you know trying to sort of meander their way through between what's actually happening, what they perceive will happen, and not being backed into a corner by the market. So the pricing of policy errors by the market lasts about a week until you know a new plaything. I'll look squirrel, um, yes. and I mean it, it's just. I, I actually, for the first time in my life, have sympathy for someone or something, and that is the various central banks of the world at the moment, because how do you navigate this nonsense when the market is behaving the way it is? Uh, good question, and it's fair to have sympathy, and I think the way they look at things is over longer cycles, and um, perhaps the lesson of the last few weeks is communication. Um, you know, we're all told throughout our lives communication is such a key part of what we do. When you have a lack of communication, you have something that, or, or if it's a vacuum, it has to be filled. And how it was filled in Australia was this sell-off that um, saw rates rise at the fastest clip since the great bond market sell-off of 1994. I was old enough to remember it. I was four, obviously, mm. but, you know, I remember it. Um, and I think, um, you know, that would be tough for the RBA to, to navigate. And, you know, they're not out there to feel sorry for the markets, but they, by, by not communicating, um, it did leave a hole in the market that, you know, pricing just took off. And, you know, treasuries, they do it, they do it frequently enough, but treasury markets and, and euro dollar markets, um, or let's say the US dollar interest rate market sold off because of Australia. Normally we follow them, but and we do have many times where, you know, we influence them. But this was one of those times where the world's focus of interest rate markets was definitely on what was happening in Australia and before that actually what was happening in New Zealand. And those markets mm. within the Asian time zone certainly impacted things. That's not the RBA's job to manage that. But what I would think is the way Governor Lowe spoke for that hour afterwards, he, he answered a lot of questions. They were soothing remarks. Um, the burn that the market felt, you know, it's not over. People will remember this one, but um, it's important that they uh, decided to, um, you know, give some really comforting words. And I think they did a pretty good job of that. You know, we're not down in yield, but we shouldn't be. We're, we're more yeah. sensibly priced. I, I, suppose, I suppose that brings me on to my next well, question or a couple of questions. They, they, they feed into one another, right? Um, given that the RBA has made it clear that, you know, yield curve controls out uh, effectively, they, they seem, whether they are or not, comfortable with what the curve looks like today. Who knows what it's going to look like next week? Um, so the question, you know, two-parter, but basically same question. How and, and, and where does that leave the RBA in terms of navigating, communicating to the market in the coming months? And more to the point, um, outside of what the RBA does or doesn't say or do, in fact, yeah. how do you think the macro situation in Oz uh, plays out over the next, you know, sort of two or three quarters as a consequence? Hmm. I might tackle the second one first. I think it's going to do really well. I think, I think I the think, first I is... I think it'll do really well. Yeah, the second one feeds into the first, but I think very well. Um, now, there's still this great big pool of savings. Of course, not everyone has it. I'm not suggesting they do, but the amount of savings is very substantial. Uh, jobs, are, um, <clears throat> jobs are coming back quite fast. 
um, the, you know, you're winding down the support mechanisms that state governments have, but you've still got a reasonably good pulse of stimulus there that has to be used or will be used. And there's a great deal of confidence. And typically, Ken, or we all know, is living here, um, you know, summer is a good time and, you know, things go well. Um, other than if we get any sort of natural disasters and it's touch wood that that sort of thing doesn't happen again. But we should get a pretty good stimulatory pipeline for at least another year. Uh, how does the RBA tackle things? Well, I think, you know, it, it's obvious that many people have questioned their credibility around the April 24. And because it was a few days and there was nothing said, the damage there is that the RBA needs to be very clear on its messaging from here when it feels as though um, it's going to hike. The obvious thing for me is going to be you've now had one quarter where it's in the bottom end of your band. How many quarters do you need to see before you are comfortable with the idea of hiking? We yeah, already because know two, two, two is not going to be enough, right? So Two is not going to be enough. It probably needs to be three. But if it's three at 2.1, again, is that enough? Mm. Because they did say the midpoint, and, and as the governor has been really clear and consistent on, oh, we think it only gets to the midpoint if the wages numbers are growing really strongly. Now, one thing that we will know is that as the borders reopen, um, it will be a race, it will be a competition, and it will mean that people come back to Australia from offshore and fill many skilled and unskilled jobs. Some of those are probably going to see wage rises. There's a good article in the AFR today around that. Mm. Uh, for skilled professionals, 20%. Um, I'd like to see that. So if anyone's listening, <laughs> please do. Um, yeah, I'll take, I'll take, no, I'll take half a fifth. No, I won't take half. I'll take 20. Um, <laughs> don't sell yourself short on that one. Um, but, you know, that's going to be something that is depressing wages. But on the other side of that coin, it's also consumption. So um, what you have to navigate from here is the credibility issue around communicating effectively on what is enough, and, you know, does it need to see three? Um, probably not, but it probably needs to see two and a half quite a few times, maybe at least twice. So if the number that comes out at the end of January for, uh, for CPI is a strong one and it is a two and a half, the market will definitely say not only are you going to end the bond purchase program by February or May, um, but you'll be hiking by mid-year. Uh, at least mid-year. Now, if the if you use the RBNZ, I think it was July, they stopped their um, uh, their bond purchase program or their LSAP, as they called it. They were going to hike in August, but for the night before when they got the COVID cases and they had their Damascene conversion, but they went the next month anyway. And they'll probably go again at the end of this month, almost certainly go at the end of this month, and then again in December. So you'll have three tightening. So it's not a long gap between ending your bond purchase program, mm. and then hiking. Yeah. And, and, and look, so, yeah. like to, to, to follow up the um, the thing about the 20%, the, that story about 20% for a senior skilled professionals that was in the fin today, I also spoke to somebody who runs a restaurant today, uh, and they were saying there is just no staff. They're, they're, like they, uh, their capacity limit has been increased, yeah. uh, and they're like, hooray, but the problem is they can't service the new numbers because they can't get the people. So, um, so, so to me, that's you know those two things, um, those two that story and that conversation happening in one day, 
um, were kind of interesting to me. Um, but a note, I think it's worth pointing out that the RBA in its statement on Tuesday was very clear um, that there's only going to be, they only are forecasting a gradual inc- increase uh, in wages growth. So we are basically, we're about to find out a lot about whether there has been the same same kind of changes in the labor market that we've, we, you know, potentially the Nairo yeah, drifting higher. Shift, to be honest. Say again? But it's a slower shift in mm. the, the wage front. But to be, to be fair, uh, the RBA and other central banks as well have not been particularly good at calling inflation over the last 20 years. They've missed that many, many times, just as put the shoe on the other foot, the bond market or strategists have not been good at calling um, that interest rates or say, you know, using James's tenure, that it'll um, uh, it'll fall. You know, that it'll, they keep saying it'll rise and every year it tends to fall. And um, so how much credibility do you put in the wages story when you hear those anecdotes? And I've heard the same, I've seen the same, mm. you know, I see the signs everywhere for we're looking for staff. And, you know, I do think there's got to be some wage pressure. Um, but will but it be sustained as the thing? Yeah. I mean, we, want, we, want, we want wage pressure, don't we? I mean, we like, do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I know. <laughs> yeah, I know I do. That's, um, okay, okay, again, doing the... Doing I've, the, I've got doing wage pressure. <laughs> you've got, I've got, when I leave I've work trust. and go home, yeah. <laughs> wage pressure. Yeah, yeah. I've got, yeah. I've got, I've got wage pressure. Don't worry about that, Paul. Um, I'll compare my wage pressure to your wage pressure. We'll see who's got more wage pressure on this one, and uh, and line it up in front of Governor Lowe, who probably his wage pressure might be a little bit different to ours. But the um, Martin uh, again doing this, doing the Jimmy James thing that I do of of bringing it back to the relevance of the day to day. In your position of knowing sort of what the hallmarks are, what the key milestones are that we need to be looking at. With the wage pressure situation, with what we're looking at in inflation, what are the actual key events that you want to be looking at and the numbers that you want to see, that you think that you want to see to be able to look at? Are we, are we going to talk about normalisation of rates or like like what is actual normal of rates? But well, what, what, yeah. what are the, yeah, the, the, maybe if we go down that, we'll go down a rabbit hole. I'm not, for, I'm not chasing that white rabbit down that hole, mate. But the... Um, what are the what are the key what are the key things that you're looking at to go okay, this is important. This is important. What are, what, what, are yep. your, what are your what are your top signals? You need the the wage price index uh, in a couple of weeks' time to be uh, a strong one. Mm. Uh, that's going to be one where uh, it will be lockdown affected to some degree. But if it's you know putting that aside, if it is firm, because it is the same anecdotes as, as we've all heard. Mm. Those anecdotes clearly have an element, well, a large element of truth. People aren't putting signs in the shop saying we need staff. It's whether or not when they get them, they decide to pay them more. Um, you know, I ask that of cafes. I ask that of uh, people I know. Are they paying more? And some are yes, some are no. So it should filter through to some degree. But, you know, you've got public sector not getting any wage rises, and that's a big part of, um, you know, the employment in Australia. And retailers definitely struggled in the lockdown period. So I... I can't imagine they're going to be on the ups, on the, uh, getting a, a big number. So for markets, it, you know, it's pretty binary. If you get a strong wages number in a few weeks' time, that is confirmation that between March and June of next year, they're going to expect a rate hike from the RBA. If you get a weak number, so something like the 1.8 or 1.5 sort of number, then that's not good enough. Uh, it's not good enough to... 
um, you know, drive the outcome on inflation, yep. which is going to be really dictated by how much um, uh, wage growth we get. And, you know, uh, we're at 1.7 right now for the year on year. And if we get, and, and yes, that's definitely picked up because I think we were down at uh, one-ish, 1.4 a few months ago, um, end of, so a year ago. Um, so we definitely had a rise. But it's well below the three percent that we last saw in 2013. Yeah, on, and, on the wage price index. Uh, and I think the thing that I've sort of slowly gotten my head around uh, in the course of this year, as the sort of transitory, non-transitory conversation has rumbled on, and maybe just took a while for me for the for the penny to drop. But you know, two percent measured here, or two and a half percent measured wage inflation here is no indication at all that there's going to be two and a half percent in 12 months from here, right? So so it can revert to the level of growth that it was at, at, at like two percent-ish or, or below very easily. Um, once you get supply coming back into the labor market, some of the kinks getting ironed out in all of the kind of disruption that we've had that have been enforced by lockdowns and different restrictions and lack of mobility, etc. Um, so you might get a tick up in the level of the price, but you, for it for there to be ongoing inflation, that tick up in the level of the price has to be sustained, and it needs to roll into you know another three quarters of a percent every quarter um, for for and that for me at the moment is harder to see and when i saw phil Lowe talking on i was able to dip in and out of it uh, his press conference on tuesday afternoon he seemed so relaxed about it and very confident that the 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 wages thing is a that is where they are looking to and um they're not you know they're pretty confident that there's there's no sign yet that wages are going to head in that direction where they would where their hand would be forced. So yeah, and they yeah. dismissed that earlier in the year back in Q two when uh, you know certainly the economy was absolutely humming at the time. Mm. There were no lockdowns anywhere, and um, you know that's when uh, you would have expected to see a real stonker of a, of a print for wages, and yet it didn't. You know it did disappoint us. Yeah. Um, can, quickly, what does this mean for um, business and mortgage costs? So, to do well, mortgage me- rates have already gone up, mm. and they've been trending up for a little while because the swap market, so not the bonds, but the swap market, has, has started to push higher in anticipation of these hikes, and so the cost of funding for banks has risen in that sense. Plus, um, the banks are going to need to go back to the capital markets to raise money again. They've been absent for the best part of 18 months. Uh, all year, we've been saying the last couple of months of the year, they've been a little bit absent so far, but it's early November. Um, so we would think that in the next month, they'll start to be a little bit more active and then certainly from next year onwards, and then they're going to need to repay their or uh, the TFF as that rolls off. So that means that when the banks come back in as an issuer, simply the amount of supply that they bring in means there the spread, in other words, the yield of where they issue relative to the swap curve, which is the underlying interest rate curve, will be wider. So it's a wider to higher cost. Mm. And in that environment, banks are simply a utility. Money in, money out, take the spread difference, and that is your net interest margin. That's a simplified way of looking at it. 
but that's the difference. And how and many as the uh, money in part goes up, money out part goes up. And, and what, what, how many basis points are we talking in terms of the, the, the that move that you're talking about above the swap curve? On sort of twenty to thirty basis points more. So effectively, a you know a rate hike. In the old school of 25, but it could be a little bit more. What the banks will need to do is replace three-year funding and deposit funding, which is short-term, mm. with long-term money. And obviously, a, a credit curve like an interest rate curve is upward sloping. And so, the longer you borrow for, the more it costs in absolute, but also in relative sense. So, uh, costs you more to replace longer-dated money. Yeah, and costs you more to replace shorter-dated money with longer-dated money. Yeah, and and like to to that point, um, the RBA's chart pack this week had that 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 um, uh, very interesting uh, illustration of how oh, yes. uh, the savings rate, um, you know, the big spike in the savings rate that we've seen, how that's changed funding composition for banks, um, big growth in domestic deposits, uh, you know, when you look at sources of funding, and then the decline in other types of borrowings, which. Um, you know, um, you, you're you're assuming would would come at a, a much greater cost, right? So, or, or well, that's, re- that's right. Relatively much greater. Now, cost. you'll hear many people, particularly those who are cashed up, um, complain about the money, the cost, uh, sorry, the rate of interest they're getting. Well, that's true. Um, you know, uh, you hear it all the time. You're getting nothing. Corporates as well, they've moved from term deposits to app calls, so they get paid less for their deposits. And that's simply a function of there's that much liquidity around. Banks, certainly in Switzerland, in the US, were turning back money from deposits from corporates because they were flooded with it. It was, it was kind of useless money for them. Mm. Um, it actually cost them money to hold. That will change, but one thing that won't change is probably that overall mix where deposits take a larger share and I know the RBA's chart, and we went from, I think, 40% domestically deposit-funded to over 60%. Um, and our term funding, which was going offshore, and our short-term funding, which was issuance of short-dated paper, has really dropped away to um, short-term less than 20 and long-term less than 10 from, you know, basically halving over the last um, couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will turn around, so we're probably at the peak of the amount of d- deposits we have. And what does that mean for, say, a, a person on the street with a deposit account? Um, well, it doesn't mean you're about to get higher deposits because there's no need to attract them at the moment. Um, but you know, there's two sides to that coin. If you're, you know, if you have deposits because you've paid the mortgage off, well, you own the house, and that's going up by a thousand dollars a week. Um, on the average house, so it's uh, it is not an ATM, but it's certainly earning you some money if prices stay where they are. Um, over time, if, you know, if you're neither an owner of a house or you're just someone with deposits, yes, you're not getting much, and you're getting less than inflation. Uh, that's unfortunately the byproduct of so much excess liquidity in markets, and it's pretty much everywhere. You know, we, we, we complain, at least we're getting a positive number. Switzerland, Japan, you know, they've been getting negative numbers for many years, so choose, choose them away. That's why you've got so many $100 bills on this ship. People are taking them out of the bank and keeping them at home. At least you don't lose money on it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, just in terms of house prices, somebody pointed out during the week, you know, if you had a, um, if you had a say, a 10%, 15% decline 
uh, in house prices from here. It might sound scary, but we'd be back to where we were at the start of the year. <laughs> no, not even, not even <laughs> not in, the year. Yeah, yeah, not even out here. Yeah. Also, don't, don't forget that uh, it's uh, don't forget when countries start to bring in uh, taxes on hundred dollar bills, Marty, which is a thing. Yes. That's always handed to, to keep it on. Yeah. 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 Um, just I quick. Think with the house story. Yeah, that's right. It becomes very emotional with houses. I mean, people have made all this money, so to speak. Um, and if they lose money from you, they haven't lost money unless you've just bought it and you have to sell it. Um, as long as you can afford to continue to pay it. The mortgage, um, then you haven't lost money, and over the forms of time, you should make money in housing. Um, so, yeah, it's up to up to what people decide to do on that asset class. But generally, it's been a way to prosperity in in uh, certainly in Australia and New Zealand. Sure. Are prices too hot since the Stone Age? They absolutely are. Yes, yes. Since the with stone the age. Uh, with the with the limited time that we have left, yep. uh, I'm going to ask him. We're just going to go around the table. Do you think the market is ready for an increase in rates locally? Equity market or housing market? Equity market. Um, the housing market will survive and always go up 15% a year. So don't don't, don't you dare disecrate the BIP show with, with dedication no. of, the, of the housing yeah, market. They're, they're like the equity That's market it. will survive and go up 10% a year. I, I, I think the market, the equity market is well able to absorb interest rate hikes from here. Um, yeah. Interest rate sensitivity, you know, companies are very clever around their hedging practices. They do look to lock in rates at these low levels. Um, they're, they're borrowing as long as they can and they're, you know, covering themselves. They've got very good cash balances. They're, they haven't splurged big, although many assets that they've bought have been bought at pretty exorbitant levels. As long as they're holding them for a long period of time, it probably won't matter. And they can finance them because I don't think that, you know, even half a percent or a percent interest rate rise is too damaging. Things will slow down for sure, or for shizzle, as they say. Yeah. So I don't. Um, but that just shouldn't, um, that shouldn't really impact things too much. Mm. Okay. What do you reckon? Can the markets just handle some sort of a, like a, like a, like a vague half semi normalization of, of rates? Well, so I think there's a couple of things. One, um, how, how much is a, a sort of semi normalization of rates? I mean, you would think three, three, three twenty five basis point um, uh, increases in relatively quick succession would um, probably be enough to uh, induce some moderation of the growth rate um, and have some impact on the inflation side. Um, given the ultra low position where we are, like it's not like it's different. Than going from you know it's very different going from ten basis points to to a hundred than it is going from four basis points to four point seven five right so yeah totally um, it's 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 a level change whereas um, whereas at four to four point seven five is 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 just a, a rate change it's a um, it's just a different game so so uh, and I think that's going to be something that. None of us have been through before. No central bank has done that before, coming from zero to to around about 100. So we haven't seen um, 
the, you know, the experiment, it's the first time the experiment will have been conducted. So we are about to find out in the next couple of years, I think. Um, certainly New Zealand is heading down that path. Um, yeah. So we might learn some lessons there. Um, so can the equity market absorb it? Um, look, I think coming back to earnings, uh, one thing with the equity market, obviously cheaper to do levered uh, investing, or sorry, more expensive to do a levered investing. So um, guys who are like leveraged up to the gills, YOLOing stocks, um, you know, um, that might change. Um, so some on the margins, it might NFTs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But go oh, in to yes. do leverage, leverage funds on NFTs. Go for NFTs. It, right. it might, it, <laughs> like, like a, a couple of basis points might destroy the NFT market or the stupid, <laughs> yeah. sorry, yeah. the unnecessary NFT market. There's a, if ever there was an argument to hike rates, it's that. <laughs> <laughs> you get the stupid free money NFT market out of the way. Yep, good. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so on the margins with, you know, NFTs, maybe crypto, whatever, right? So, um, that kind of leverage stuff um, might get a bit of a bloody nose. Um, but the core of the Australian market is around commodities, banks, and then some, some, some pretty solid companies that, as Martin just said, know how to navigate their way through um, changes in business conditions. Like they are, they are pretty well-run companies. We're pretty lucky. Um, you know, certainly ASX top 50. So, um, so I think, yeah, um, and, and the banks in particular, you know, um, rising rate environments can be helpful for bank profitability. Yeah. So um, remember, too, that if, if interest rates are going up because you've got a stronger economy, well, obviously, companies are selling more widgets. Yeah. Uh, and so they're you know, profitable. Um, the interest rate exposure that many of these companies have, like the, the gearing, is generally pretty low. So it's not actually too difficult for them. Mm. And um, just one thing quickly, Martin, just head over the Pacific quickly. We had the Fed um, yep. uh, last night. Maybe let's just chat about that quickly for, for a couple of minutes. Um, the taper is on. Um, uh, uh, you know, rate rises not yet, but um, it, they, they may, again, they may be um, pushed into it. Uh, what do you think? So we, you know, clearly the fifteen billion dollars is what every pretty much everyone expects. I think there were a few people going for twenty, which I thought was, you know, they won't want to tighten their financial conditions. Make the point very clearly: tapering is not tightening. And the distinction there was really clear from Jay Powell when he said, "We're happy to taper, but no, 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 we're not tightening rates." So we think they end their taper in about June. Uh, we had thought it'd be April, but um, June they start. You know, obviously. Uh, November, and um, we think that they would start to put their Fed funds rate up in September 2022. Uh, going into December, March, June, June, September, December, so fairly linear 25 bikes. You know, they tend not to have many pauses on the way up. There used to be this thing years ago around how many steps before a pause. I think we had. 17 in a row back in the early 2000s before, um, you know, the, uh, so to say, she hit the fan. Um, but the balance sheet is pretty much wound down by June. And then, um, you know, the hikes by then, you should see enough inflation in the economy to justify the hikes. That's still the second part that's undecided. There will be the befores and the afters on that view. 
Um, let's see what happens in terms of financial conditions tightening because if it means that you have less support in things like uh, the uh, risk-free rates, the bank spreads, the mortgage rates going higher, then that all t- tightens financial conditions and it means that the both the timing and the amount of um, uh, hiking can be moderated somewhat. But, yeah. you know, our view is definitely that they start hiking from June next year and uh, – sorry, September next year and um, go, uh, you know, 25 at a time. Because mm-hmm. it does – like this is one of the things that I sort of think about a lot is, you know, how inflation can feed itself, right? So um, you lift hikes, you increase borrowing costs for corporates, businesses, um, and maybe there's some wage pressure. You put those two things together – uh, companies have little choice but to increase uh, prices to is, yeah. to to defend their margins. So you know, um, so it's going to be an interesting year, isn't it? Twenty twenty two. It's going to be good for the Richie Bono um, uh, impersonators. Um, uh, yes, but but also, <laughs> um, but uh, also in central banking terms. Yeah, everyone's got this synchronized growth, synchronized inflation pulse, synchronized timing of rate hikes. If everyone's tightening financial conditions at the same time, I think it's not a big stretch to say, gosh, what could that mean for um, you know the, the risk on uh, on the economy? And I think to right at the beginning of the show on the curve, that is probably what the long end of the curve is trying to tell you. That if everyone goes hard and you know no no. No country is an island. Yeah. Uh, in monetary policy these days, uh, and they all feed off each other. And in that respect, um, you would have a bit of a slowdown. And I think the curve is probably trying to tell you that. Yeah, yeah. So the the Maginot line, which you've talked about, which I, yeah. uh, um, which I love as a World War Two buff, um, the Maginot line at two percent for ten years um, is still intact, very much. We, we hit it the other day in Australia and we bounced pretty sharply off it. But, you know, it's not to say you can't get up to 210, but, mm. I, you know, you're definitely seeing people looking to rotate. As rates go higher, uh, it obviously has some impact on, on equity earnings, on the leverage part that you mentioned, you know, the hot stocks and the techs. And so as a protection, you're getting a little bit longer of bonds up here. It's, it's adding ballast. Mm. Um, this has been great, uh, Martin. Thank you so much for making the time. I know it's been a very, very Thanks busy week. Yeah, it's been a very busy week for you. So, um, re- really great having you on to 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 um, take us all through it because it's a complex area. Um, and uh, as I've said before, you're you're um, one of the best at explaining it in the country. So, um, really appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. Um, has, don't... It been busy? Has, it been, has it been a busy week for you, mate? <laughs> it has, um, and it's a bit hard typing, as you know. Usually, <laughs> I chopped off the top of my finger, so uh, yeah. it's been a bit nasty. He's running on a 9.75 nine nine <laughs> yeah. digit rate over there. It's a real shame. Yeah. So, look, thank you. Um, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Rate us, leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts at The Bip Show. We're on Twitter. It's at the underscore Bip underscore show. Um, we're on Facebook too. Just search The Bip Show. Um, we're all on Twitter individually too, at Colgo, at James Wheeling 42 at Ken Vexler. Um, and Ken had to pop off because he's got... Uh, 
uh, school runs to do in Amsterdam. Uh, and you can find Martin at Martin underscore Wetton. Uh, uh, and he's uh, on there talking about uh, what's happening in fixed interest markets on a regular basis. Very exciting. Uh, yeah. Um, so um, uh, thank you. Um, fixed income, uh, fixed interest uh, uh, markets would be pretty, pretty dull Twitter. Uh, but, but fixed income markets, yeah. Uh, Martin. He once, makes it exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so Martin, uh, once again, thanks a million. Pleasure. Uh, thanks, James. It's been great. Done, you mate. Well done. Talk to you later. Thanks, yeah. everyone. Let, good yeah, let's get out of here. The show is produced by Rick Salter. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.